Let's find our way to Micah chapter 3 to begin this morning. And if you have a little bit of a hard time also finding Isaiah, uh, have that at the ready. But uh, we're going to be in Micah for the first half here. Um, Micah is one of those books that uh, very, very seldomly gets referenced uh, in churches these days. And one of the one of the great atrocities of that is it's one of the clearest of the minor prophets with regards to the connection between God's judgment and God's salvation. You can leave that. You can leave that cracked open if someone's listening. Um, and so there is a connection in Micah between God's judgment and God's salvation. And the teaching throughout it is that God will not suspend judgment of sin in order to just save everybody. There has to be dealing with sin, right? And I think there's a common misunderstanding, and usually because we're not familiar with the clearer portions of scripture on these things, there's an understanding that goes around the church that thinks that God in saving people just ignores their sin. Is that how God saves people? No. He can't ignore sin. That's not what holiness does. And so there's entire prophets that are set aside teaching the people of Israel this reality that they cannot just assume that God turns a blind eye to sin. It doesn't work like that. Um, even when he saves people in the New Testament age, in the church age, he doesn't ignore our sins. He places full judgment on them because without the shedding of sin, there is no, rem- or the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In other words, our sins have earned death. This is why Christ came to die for us. It is not because he was just being kind or nice. The reality is he was bearing the judgment of God on our behalf. And so in salvation, God is not ignoring our sins, and he's not just forgiving them. He is judging them in full wrath and forgiving us our sins, transferring them to Christ while we have his righteousness transferred to us. The groundwork for that is laid in all of the minor prophets, uh, but especially the book of Micah. And I will say it's one of the the more um, unfortunate aspects that people aren't more familiar with the book of Micah because it is one of the most um, salient uh, of the prophets regarding this connection between God's judgment and God's salvation. And wouldn't you know it, the Spirit of the Lord plays center, center role in the midst of it all. So um, we're going to be in Micah chapter 3, but I will say this, because, um, well, let me put out there. Do you, what do you know about the book or the prophet Micah off the top of your head? All right, so... As we go through the minor prophets and some of the major prophets, I'm going to I'm going to establish a bit of a familiarity. There is a um, there is a uh, a channel that makes introductions to all the books of the Bible. It's a remarkable resource uh, called the Bible Project. We're going to watch. They're about six to seven eight minutes uh, on each book of the Bible. We're going to watch the one on the book of Micah because I find it most helpful. Uh, especially as we go through the minor prophets, because we're not as familiar with this section of scripture uh, to kind of establish what is going on in Micah's world. uh, And so that we're not just dropped into here without any back point. So we will start by just watching that. So I actually have it queued up. The book of Micah. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. 
Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so, most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now, these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people. And he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day, God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. 
And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. Okay. I wanted to express that for those of you who walked in uh, during that. Um, that is a ministry called the Bible Project. They do introductions on every book of scripture and all sorts of different theological points. Uh, remarkable, remarkable work on the summations of the biblical text. And the reason we go through that is because I, I would say that we are very unfamiliar with, um, with aspects of the minor prophets. And I find that really the source of most of the issues, uh, even amongst conservative churches these days, is because we think that that's just for another time, or that's a section of scripture that's not really applicable to us. It is directly applicable to us. Uh, it is applicable to how we evangelize. Uh, it is applicable to understanding what is it that God is doing in saving some and not saving others. This is the reality of how God has always worked, that there is evil that will not be excused. It will not just be turned a blind eye to. It will be dealt with in full judgment that God may save. Those two aspects are always a part of the message of Scripture. Sin that is not explained away. We are not saved by God just ignoring our sin and being our friend. We are saved by the judgment of God, the wrath of God coming upon Christ in our place, that he may save us. 
that that aspect of judgment and hope is back and forth all the time in especially in the minor prophets but also in larger prophets like Isaiah uh, Daniel um, Ezekiel even uh, these these themes will continue to blossom out over the next several weeks as we go through the prophets and as we come to new prophets I'm going to walk us through that introduction because I wanted to ensure that we're working on a foundation of at least some familiarity with some of these. Um, so that when we come, we're going to be in Micah chapter 3, when we come to uh, a passage that's talking about the Spirit of God, why it is that we can settle on the fact that, I mean, when we first started, what was the first verse that the introduction was quoting? It was chapter 3, verse 8. That happens to be the exact passage that we're coming to this morning, because it's the reference to the Spirit of God as the one doing all of this. Right? When we talk about the Spirit of God... Every time we talk about the Spirit of God, any time you settle into uh, a passage anywhere in Scripture, Genesis through Revelation, when the Spirit of God is invoked, look for how He is bringing life into the world. Right? This is, this is one of those aspects in the minor prophets, especially, where He specifically brings new life through judgment. The question is not, is the Holy Spirit always bringing life to everyone everywhere. No, not. The reality is when his purposes are to bring death and judgment on things, as we even saw in Genesis 6 before the flood, the Spirit of God leaves the children of mankind. And what's the natural result? Judgment on sin. The Spirit of God is involved on all points. The same thing goes with when he designs and fulfills the design of the tabernacle, uh, when he carries out these things with the priests, if they are not to do this correct, the Lord reaches out from the altar and kills them. It's Leviticus chapter 10. If you want to watch Nadab and Abihu, uh, offering strange fire before the Lord. These aren't pittances that we're dealing with. They are the center of what holiness is. God will never abide a single sin to live forever. He will stamp it all out. And in history, there have been many instances where he comes and makes that really clear in temporal stories, where he deals with judgment on a specific time period or a specific people, especially to the people of Israel, but it goes outside their border as well. We have entire prophets that are written to the people of Edom, the people of Moab, uh, who are not Israelites, but still God's judgment exists over the sins of all people because he is not just Lord of Israel, he is Lord of Lords and King, not just of Israel, but King of Kings. And so all of these themes will play on as we go into the prophets for the next several weeks. Uh, Micah chapter 3, though. Let's start in verse 1 and work our way up to this. Uh, as we saw in the introduction, the main issue was that the rulers and the prophets have, have forsaken God and instead are doing these things for their own benefit. We rule so that we may be enriched. We are prophets so that people may like us. They may like the messages that we bring and Micah comes up and says this, verse 1, chapter 3, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off of my people, watch this cannibalistic language he uses, and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Now, this is not calling out in repentance. This is calling out to end our suffering. 
the, the consequences of decisions. Here in Israel, the rulers and the prophets have been destroying the people and leading them astray. And it leads to the suffering in the lives of the rulers and the prophets. And they call out to the Lord to alleviate the suffering, but not to repent of their sins. And so in verse 4, God makes it very clear, that's not how life comes. You do not just take your life and then go, I'm going to add God to this so that he alleviates my suffering, but I'm going to protect my sin. No, that will kill you. If God comes close to you while there's undealt with sin, you will be stamped out with it. Because the sinner and the sin are not two different entities. They are one and the same. And what he says here in following, watch this. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. These would be the false prophets who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, the diviners put to shame, and they shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Now, these would be the false prophets who are coming to the people of Israel and calling them out for their sin, but then their own sin is not being dealt with. This happens many, 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 many times. In fact, the New Testament particularly warns pastors against this. Beware and watch and keep watch over your own self, lest through your teaching, Paul warns Timothy, you may save those who are hearing you, but then lose your own self. It's a remarkable statement to the reality that it's not just about what you're saying. It is about who you are. Is your sin having been dealt with in Christ in the church age, or do you still bear it? Do we repent of these things, or do we just assume that God turns a blind eye to our sins and that we can just follow the Lord in some separated out way? My sins are here, I'll just leave them alone, and then I'll, I'll be this completely different person elsewhere. And God says to Micah and through Micah, that's not how this works. Not here in the time of the 8th century BC, not even today in the 21st century. It doesn't work like that. Our sins, now that we're in the church age, to just apply this direct, are fully on Christ as Christians. This is why we don't deal with sins by focusing on our sins. We deal with sins by focusing on Christ. And the Spirit of God continually works in us and reconciles us and rejuvenates us and brings new life in places that are trying to kill us. And I find a lot of people get quite lackadaisic about this. Um, when, when they see Jesus as the answer to our sins, but not the answer to our righteousness, not the answer to all things, as though he is just here to save us from our sins and that's the end of it. Uh, giving us kind of like a fire insurance type thing. Well, you know, Jesus, you know, paid off these sins of mine so I don't have to deal with them. I don't have to repent of them. Yeah, we do. Because as we grow in the Lord, the reality is we start having the spirit of God. We start hating the things that God hates. And he hates sin with, with a level that you and I can't even imagine. And so when people, when people look at their lives and go, well, God just doesn't really care about sins much anymore. That was kind of Old Testament stuff. Nonsense. Nonsense. He sees what it's going to do to us and it's going to shred us to pieces because that is what sin does. It separates. 
It always separates man from God, humans from one another, even in the marriage relationship that was even told in Genesis 3. There's going to be enmity between them. There will be enmity between us and the created world. There will be frustrations and suffering even from the ground to us. It's, it's just separating everything in creation. To not face that head on is to be ambushed by sin, both in our personal life as well as our corporate life. And so sin must be dealt with and stamped out and dealt with quickly in our own lives first. And this is what Micah is saying to these false prophets. You go out there and you're preaching peace to those who you are leading astray. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. No worries. No worries. We're being disobedient to God in every single area. But don't worry. God's okay with us. And this is what the people were saying, especially as the northern kingdom crumbled and fell within the next generation after Micah. As the northern kingdom was carried away, the people in the southern kingdom got this boastfulness about them. They say, well, we have the temple. God will never allow his temple to be destroyed. We're caretakers. It's good that God judged them. They're sinners. We're good. And that was one of the issues of the southern kingdom that got this pride about them. And it comes up in the book of Jeremiah when we get there. People were just chanting, the temple, the temple, the temple. The Lord will never let his temple fall. And what did God have for that generation? But to have them stand by while they watched the Babylonians completely destroy the temple. Not one stone on top of another. It's similar to multiple times in the history of God's people where they assume that God, if he's for us, leads to no suffering. It's not true. Even when it came to when Jesus was going, him, his body, the temple, was going to go up to Jerusalem and be killed, destroyed, not one stone left on top of another. And what was it that Peter says? No, it's never going to happen. God is for you. You are the chosen one. May it never be. And what does Jesus say to him? The sternest warning in the Gospels. Get away from me, Satan. You're not putting your mind on what God wants, but on what man wants. We want to follow God without suffering. That does not happen until we are fully without sin. And we live in a world without sin. Right now, neither are you and I without sin, nor those in our assembly without sin, nor are we living in a world without sin. And so the sweat of our brows and the blood of our fingers and the frustrations and separations between people carry on. And so we have to understand how is it that we work in a world like this. And Micah says, the first thing you can't do is ignore sin. This is what the false prophets were doing, preaching peace, peace. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. No worries. We have entire songs that are written like this, that are sung in churches all over the place. Jesus is all right with me. Everything's fine. Everything's good. With no expression of why it is fine. Why is it that we have peace between us and God? It is not because we have reached sinlessness. It is because Christ is that powerful of a Savior that he has preached peace to us who used to be far off and has pulled us in near, right? Micah is expressing to these prophets that they were preaching peace to those who were carrying on an evil. You can't do that. You cannot just go up to somebody, and this, this applies to the church age as well. You cannot just go up and call it evangelism to just say, here's who Jesus is, here's what he did, just come to church and everything's fine. It's not fine. It's not fine. There must be a repentance of sin and a turning in faith towards Christ alone. We cannot assume that God is only interested in salvation now of all people. In fact, so many people teach this 
to the extreme that they actually end up in a place called universalism. You familiar with that term? What do you think it means just from the terminology? What do you think? Uh, universalism has the idea that God will eventually save all people. Yep. Is that true? No. Can't be true, can it? No, because there's those who do not place their faith in Christ. There are those who do not repent of their sins. And when I say that this goes to the extreme, I mean to the unbiblical extreme of saying that God is all about salvation, not about judgment. That's how, that's how misunderstood the role of the Spirit of God is throughout the prophets. Because even when he is coming to the day of Pentecost, he's not coming on everyone in the entire world. It's to those who bear the message of life. What are you to do? Repent and believe in the gospel for the salvation of your souls. Okay? It has nothing to do with go home and try to live better and fix sin yourself. You can't. 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 Nobody can. Doesn't work like that. You want to do that? That's called saving yourself. That's what the Pharisees were doing, right? But everyone has the opportunity, correct? Everyone is given the command to repent and believe. Yes. And all that the Lord calls will certainly do so. Yes. And so, what is it that Micah says here? He says, these false prophets... Yes, sir? What did you just say? All that are what? All... So, yes, all are given the command to repent and believe, and all are responsible for that, absolutely. To those who are called. To those who are called, yes, God will save every single one of them, not losing one. Yeah. Correct. That's not yeah, there is, there is no such person that wants to be saved on God's terms that God does not save. Okay? Not one. It's never existed. Not one person in history. Okay? And so, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about that, as if, you know, God is just going, no, I'm only going to give salvation to these people who are my absolute favorites, and you over there truly repenting and wanting to trust in Christ. No. And that person does not exist. Scripturally speaking, if somebody is repenting and desiring salvation on God's terms, that is God working in them already. Okay? So yes, ma'am. People that talk about predestination. Sure. That's basically on the people then, right? Because, I mean, hmm. if... I might not understand it well. Sure. I've always struggled with that. Like, sure. Uh, God knows who's going to come, so he's only going to call some people. Predestination, would that mean, like, everyone has the opportunity to repent? Yes. But those... I'm still okay. So <laughs> sure, like, sure. So that would be. Let's just say me. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I have the opportunity to repent, but I choose not to. Mm-hmm. That would be part of. The, so the predestination would that be on me? So sorry. The, oh, no, 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 no problem. Yeah, no. It, it's it's clarity that really does need to be made because it's usually spoken of in really loose terms. So okay. let me try to clarify it as best as possible. Um, we are all commanded to repent and believe in the gospel. Yes, that is the message of the kingdom. It is what Jesus has preached since the very beginning. It is what the apostles preached. It is what all faithful scripture preaches. That is the call that goes out to the world. The question is, who responds to that? That's really where your question comes to call. The natural man, on his own, without the Spirit of God, will not, and indeed cannot, respond to that in a proper way. We must be what's called regenerated first. God must raise us to life again. 
And that new life depends on Christ and repents of sin. That's what they do. Uh, and so that is how God actually saves us. I'm actually going to be talking about this in a couple of weeks, a sermon called What is Salvation? So um, where predestination falls in is not that God just knows this ahead of time, but that God intends to save those whom he saves and intends to not save those he does not save. It does not depend on us. It depends on God. In fact, that is directly stated in Romans chapter 9, that it depends on God who wills to save this people. It becomes offensive to us because we usually start with this idea that God owes salvation to everyone. That's the wrong place to start. God owes salvation to no one. God would be perfectly just and holy and right to kill all of us for our treason. That's what sin has done. The fact that he saves some does not obligate him to save others. And this is, this is one of those very difficult aspects of Scripture that usually gets kind of shoved under the rug, but the reality kind of stands to it. The same thing here in Micah, that yes, God is going to stamp out and kill many of the people of Israel, but there's a remnant that he has kept for his own uh, purpose and salvation. Because God is not just a saving God, God is a just and saving God. These two aspects are always side by side. And so for the church, when we preach to the world, we give them that same thing that Christ gave us, repent and believe in the gospel. You say, well, what if that person doesn't do that? That doesn't change our job. That doesn't change what message we have to bring. So well, what if that's not popular? It's never been popular. Right? That message has never been popular because it comes with the same thing that the apostles would say. If you fail to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is, what is to conclude but that God has set a day on which he will judge the world by righteousness in the man Jesus Christ? That was exactly what Paul said on Mars Hill. Um, I, I think the struggle that some people have is that this all depends on God. And it kind of pulls our free will out of it in most people's mind. It doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. Our free will, without intervention, chose death and sin every time. That's what our free will chooses. Our, we are not capable in a fallen state of bringing out life. That's the job of the Spirit of God. Only God can do that. It's why we can't save ourselves by works. It's not because we can't do good things. We can physically do good things. But we can't be holy. That's the standard. We have to be just like God. In fact, that's not just an Old Testament thing in the law, Leviticus 11.44, but it's also a New Testament thing at the end of Matthew 5, where Jesus says in the Sermon on Mount, you have to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. It's not better than someone else or anything like this. Who can do this? Nobody. And that's the outcome of our free will. We, we may even try to live better and try to do goodness, but we all know how temporary that is. We don't actually have the power to take care of sin. We don't. God does. And by taking care of sin, it's not just giving us new habits. That's way down the road of sanctification. At the very start of salvation, it is taking the judgment, penalty, and wrath that is owed to us and placing it on Christ. Right? And so this is, this is why that kind of salvation is enacted um, because our sin is actually dealt with. That is God who instigates that. The only reason we love him is because he first loved us. Um, all these teachings come together on this idea that God is the agent of salvation, not our free will. I'm very grateful God did not 
just allow me to make the decisions I would make based on my own natural proclivities. I would just choose sin and death every time, even if I had good intention, right? And so when the call comes to repent and believe in the gospel, those whom God is saving, he, it's stated in scripture, gifts repentance and gifts faith. Those are gifts as well, not just the grace. All of these things are gifts because God is a saving God and nobody's going to stay his hand and God is a judging God and nobody's going to stay his hand. Um, Those two aspects really always have to be proclaimed because otherwise we end up with a lopsided message. Either God doesn't really care about sin anymore because of the cross or something, uh, or God is just a judging God and you have to do everything right, otherwise he's going to squash you. Neither of those things is true. Both of them are true in tandem with one another. Um, This is why every time salvation is talked about in Scripture, there's always judgment right there with it, back and forth. Repent and believe, or death and destruction. Death and destruction, in the midst of that, those who repent and believe. That just kind of goes back and forth throughout the prophets, throughout the New Testament as well. Um, I hope that answers the question uh, on some levels. The reality is that God does predestine his people. God knew our names before the world was created. That is undeniable scripturally. I mean, I mean, it's undeniable when people still try to deny it. I mean, people try to deny all sorts of things. Um, it's clearly taught in multiple passages, not just New Testament, but Old as well. Um, even his choosing of Israel, they weren't even a nation. It prefigures that kind of salvation in them as well. He comes down and chooses them out of the middle of the world, just a Bedouin named Abraham that worshipped the moon god. Abraham didn't seek God out. God came and showed up to him made a covenant with him. Abraham did not make a covenant with God. God made a covenant with him. That's how that works. And Abraham, what does it say? Believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. All the way back. That's Genesis 12 and 15. Remarkable stuff. Um, By the way, that's the foundation uh, of all of these things, that God chooses those whom he saves. And he doesn't do that by violating our free will. This is the really cool part of this. He doesn't just come in and say, I know you want death and stuff, but I'm going to override your free will. No, he saves us and gives us new desires that we actually want to please the Lord. Right? It changes. It does. It changes the heart attitude at the very core of who we are. Right. Now, are we 100% redone? We have no sinful desires? No, 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 no. That's Romans 7. We still have sin that dwells in our members. He talks about it like it's at our fingertips. And it's, he says, it's this frustrating reality of this back and forth, even in our own hearts, where we love the salvation of God and the righteousness of God, but there's this other law that wars against me that causes me to do things I don't want to do. How many of you as Christians would say, I love sin, it's really just fun? No. But in the moment, yes. And then afterwards, no. Right. And repentance and hatred and, and frustration and, and the same things that uh, Paul says at the end of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And that's, that's that great reality that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? It's not because God doesn't care about sin. It's because for his people, his sin has already enacted its fullest judgment and wrath on the cross. People are so confused on this that they'll even change words and hymns that talk about this reality that it saved a wretch like me to save the person like me. Or, or that God's wrath came to bear on the cross to God's love was on display on the cross. That's true, but that's not the primary role of what was happening on the cross. 
The wrath of God was happening. That's why the sun was being darkened and the earthquakes were happening. This is what happens when God brings judgment into the world. We've barely gotten to Micah, but these two sides are always on display. And I find that we miss them so much because we're not familiar that this has always been the way that God has talked about salvation. And this is the job of the Holy Spirit as well. It's how God brings life. And in a sinful, fallen world, there is no way to bring life to everything. When you are God, your holiness both saves and judges. So there's always going to be two parts, those whom God is saving and those whom God is destroying. This is how life actually comes. And if you have any doubt, look at, look, look at the very next verses here. Verse 8. As for me, Micah says, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might. What, what, is the, what is the purpose here that the Spirit of the Lord in bringing life, what is he doing? To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. To declare and condemn sin is to also bring life. It is how life comes into a fallen world. You, you cannot just come and say, oh, ignore sin. God will just make life despite it. No, no, no. He will deal with sin, eradicate it in the ultimate sense, in the, in the new heavens and new earth. He will eradicate sin entirely. And until then, we have this back and forth reality between judgment and salvation. But because sin still dwells, part of bringing life into a fallen world is to preach against sin. Is to bring judgment onto those sins. And so the Spirit of God, through the prophet Micah, establishes this reality that part of the message of life is to judge those who are wicked. There's just no two ways around it. And he says to those false prophets, you are preaching just peace to those who are wicked. You can't do that. There are many, many who do this. You don't have to really believe in Jesus. You don't really have to repent of sins. All you just, just, just come to church. Everything's fine. Everything's okay because something happened at a cross at some point way in the past. It's all okay. Just try to do better. Peace, peace, peace. That's not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has always been that. But before the Lord Jesus Christ, turn from your sins and trust in the Lord. It's, it's the same exact message. Just with Christ, it is focused for us on who is the actual one bringing that about. Yeah. And as you read on, you'll see the, yep. the even more motive of why uh, Yep. Absolutely. Right. So yeah, let's keep doing it. Verse nine, hear this. So this is what the spirit of God says to them. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice. In other words, they look at what God is doing in judging sin and say, no. mm." And then they see it in their own life and that will have ramifications in your own life. You won't actually seek real justice. You will just explain things away or push this aside or just try to make everything okay and let sin run rampant while it kills people. That's not kind. That's not good. Especially if you're a leader in Israel. If, if you're a judge and you just kept letting murderers go, you're a bad judge. You need to, you need to have justice reign. This isn't about social justice. This is about justice itself. There is, there is 
those who will deal with sin in the temporal sense, I mean, think about it this way. If we, if we just had a judge in town who just let every infraction go, no penalties, no jail time, no community service, no parole, no fines, nothing. How many of you would be speeding around town? Or <laughs> with, with, with no concept of punishment. <laughs> with no concept of punishment or anything like that. Even the temporal, we see what would happen to a culture. Anarchy. And God is not an anarchist. Not on the cosmic level, even a bit. In fact, not even for one sin. Yes, sir. You can see that today. Yes. This exact same thing today. It happens in every culture. Absolutely. And, that, and so be careful because if it happened then, it can happen now. Right. What, you know, the judgment of, you know, of being full of uh, pride iniquity and I mean this this whole chapter you can look at today. Oh yes, absolutely. Anything goes. Yeah. Right. Not only does everything go, but then nothing is ever nothing is ever confronted. And so what happens happens the same in the world of Micah, where the first place that shows up is the poor are taken advantage of by the rich. I'm not sitting here speaking of economics or political policy. I'm just saying the most susceptible to those abuses of justice will be there. Yeah. Right? And so, like, for instance, if, if oh, let's just say there's no traffic enforcement whatsoever, right? Rich person, they crash their car, eh, buy a new one. Poor person that gets their car crashed into, how hard is that? You have to, everything okay over there? <laughs> you know, uh, is there is there a... It shows up first to the poor because they can't insulate themselves from the suffering of the world. Those who are well off can to a certain degree. And so it first shows up with that. And then preferential treatment is then shown to those who aren't suffering. And, and that's how you find all of these things in the prophets will, will address these, these rulers and these judges who are, who are favoring the wealthy. Why? It's not because they just want their money, though there's part of that. But it's also to the fact that the poor have no defense. They're the ones actually suffering because of your ignoramusness and you won't address it and you won't change your focus on justice at all. Um, uh, let's see. Yes. Uh, the rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice this is verse nine and make crooked all that is straight. Look at that. This reversal of what the spirit of the Lord is going to do into the future. Make straight the paths of the Lord. These prophecies that are headed down here. It's we make crooked that which is already straight. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with sins and iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No. Disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins in the mountain of the house, uh, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Nothing's going to happen to us. We're good. Everything's fine. Everything's been carrying on just fine. God says, no, I have disaster planned for you. Uh, that That is a rough reality. But in the long term, and this is why it's always good when the Spirit of the Lord is invoked, especially in the Old Testament passages, to see how is it that God is bringing life out of all this? 
because it sounds like he's just killing everybody. He's killing all those who will define themselves by injustice and iniquity because they do not look to him for salvation or anything. In that, he brings life to the remnant. That's what the rest of the book of Micah is about, is, is this, uh, you actually saw in the introduction there, this judgment and, and foundation, and then hope in the future, back and forth, back and forth. And one of the, one of the great aspects of this, turn to uh, Micah 6, one of the great aspects of this is this idea that the people of, God, uh, the, that the people of Israel are just like, you know, God has never told us you know, what he actually wants. And God's like, yeah, I actually have. He's told, the Lord has told you what he requires of you. It's, it's the most famous passage out of the book of Micah. It's, uh, it's, uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 6, it starts. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Remember, the same thing with Saul, right? What is it that Samuel said to him? To obey is better than sacrifice, right? And, and Because rebellion is just like the sin of witchcraft. There is, to rebel against God is the same as to join the forces of evil and divination. There is no difference between these. And, and Saul was reminded of that in a very distinct way. But here it comes up again, this idea that the, the goal is not to just offer right sacrifices. The goal is to have sin dealt with entirely. We know that the blood of bulls and goats does not eradicate sin. That's Christ. But here at this time, what does he say? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I even give my firstborn for my transgression? Human sacrifice. The most valuable thing to me, my entire history, my entire future and lineage, will I lay that down to purchase salvation from God, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And what does he say in verse 8? Micah reminds them, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? That, my friends, has not changed. By the way, Christ did this exact thing because he, as the second Adam, was perfect human and reflected the divine in every aspect. Love justice. He was not sitting here saying, oh, no, no don't worry about it. He, what, when he went to sit with tax collectors and sinners, he called them to repentance. He wasn't just reveling in their sin, which a lot of people misteach. Oh, look, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Therefore, Jesus doesn't condemn sin. That's all he was doing constantly. From Pharisee to tax collector, condemning sin. He loved justice. And he also loves mercy. Why? Because this is what God loves. He seeks justice and he loves mercy. And what, as humans, does that make us do but to walk humbly with our God? It teaches us who we are. Without God's justice, there would be no eradication of sin and no hope. And without God's mercy, there would be no salvation. We would just be living in a fallen world waiting to die. Yes, sir. In, in verse 12, if you back up to uh, chapter 3, mm-hmm. if you look at that, yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. And, and uh, something that I, I see here is that, therefore, because of you, Zion will 
will be plowed like a field. Yep. And the rest of it's going to be heaps and ruins, and the, and, yep. and the mountains of the temple will be like bare hills and forests. Well, the farmer don't go and just till the field. They don't just go out and plow fields. So to me, that's telling me that something's, come, something's going to be planted and, and, and to come forth at a later date. Right. Do you understand? Yep, absolutely. So looking at that, I'm, I'm seeing, okay, you know, so it's telling you it's going to be ruined, but we're going to till the field and we're going to get something better right. than to replant what was bad fruit. Bad, exactly. Bad whatever. So that what we actually see, and, and we see this prefigured even fertilizer, right. is death and defecation is part of bringing life. It goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. Right. Right, exactly. That back and forth that God is actually, and that's exactly what he's focusing on here. The Spirit of God will, I mean, I'll use it in terminology that's used elsewhere in the prophets, will fertilize the fields with the wicked so that new life may come. It's a remarkable statement of judgment, and you're exactly right. And the fact that he's turning Zion into this means not even the temple, the physical temple, is safe from this. God's judgment will go to the smallest might of the universe. So will his mercy. And the effect of that is humiliation and humbleness in walking with the Lord for those whom God is saving. Uh, yeah, the parable of this, he's ranked up in time and so yep. perfect in places. All the way through, constant, constant, right. constant. So why is that? Why is it constant? It's the world has fallen. And even in Christ's gathering, all victory at the cross has not made a full end to everything yet. Uh, the scriptures say that the end comes when the final person that God has, to use your term, predestined, has come to salvation. Until then, we know that there are brothers and sisters yet to be saved, and so we preach the gospel to the end of the world. Um, and uh, actually, uh, I believe it is Second Peter talks about the fact that in preaching the gospel, we hasten the day of the Lord. We bring it closer. And, and he connects this idea of evangelism to the end of the world, that not that we just go, oh, the end is near, you know, all this problems. And, no, preaching the gospel brings about the end of the world. It will, in the ultimate sense. Not just you and me, but the whole church. Um, and this is why we focus on it so much because that is our prime directive. In all of these things, when we preach the gospel, we cannot just preach that God is just love and mercy, right? And I will say, uh, those who are not Christians have taken up this issue with that message and say it is inconsistent with what you say, that God just loves you lots and lots and lots, and everything's fine, everything's good, just follow him, and, and, and just you know give a thumbs up to God or something like that. And if you don't, when you die, he's going to kill you really bad. And they come back and say, that's not consistent. And you know what? They're right. They're right. The offer of salvation extends to the time of your death, but do not think that God changes just because you died. God holds out justice and mercy at all points throughout all of history, has always been saving his people, and has always been condemning those who refuse to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That extends to the end of the world. And that is why when we share the gospel, it must be not just we're trying to convince you to have better purpose in your life, or if you really want happiness, or if you want to answer to all these bad habits, that's not enough. It's it's not just bad habits and mistakes. You are a treason to the one who created you. You have offended the holiness of God on high, 
and must repent. And there is only one name under heaven by which you can be atoned because you can't do it by just making your mind up to do better. His name is Jesus Christ. Here is who he is. He loved justice and you best be terrified by that. He also sought mercy and you must cast yourself on him because of that. And then you will walk humbly with your God. Guys, this is, this is 800 years before Jesus walked the world. It's always been the plan of salvation. It doesn't change in the New Testament. It, doesn't, it wasn't different in the Old Testament. It's not like God says, you know, oh, all you do is just do these things and all will be well. That was part of the law. Do these things and you will live. That's a promise. The problem is what? We go and try to do them. What do we do? We fail. And so we try to do those things and we die because we didn't do them. That's not unfair. That's God showing us how desperate our position is. There's a great mercy that he sent the law to show us that. And he has had the gospel right there with it. You can't defeat the serpent, but I will crush his head. Trust in me. And every single thing in the scriptures always comes back to that. Um, Man, I had the first half of Isaiah set for today as well. know us by now it's it's but you see how centrally important this stuff is i'm i'm glad we could at least lay some found uh, uh, some foundation work with micah because it's one of the he's one of the earliest of prophets that we absolutely can nail down when he was serving uh and he he will talk about this going forward and his ultimate hope in in uh in the later chapters of the book of isaiah or of, of micah talk all about there's a coming one who will do both of these things in the ultimate. Imagine how horrible the new heavens and new earth would look if God was not seeking justice and carrying out justice, not on just the sinful of the world, but our own sins. Do you want to live forever in your fallen state? Next to, and this this double nature of having sin nature and a new nature wrestling back and forth. I don't want to live forever like this. That, that was the protection of eating from the tree of life. Don't stick out your hand and eat forever in a fallen state. You don't want that. I don't want to live like this forever. I want my sins to stay in the grave. I want that whole nature to stay behind. I want to be recreated brand new in a new heavens and new earth. That's everything the gospels, everything the prophets will focus on uh, from here on out is this idea that God's justice will eliminate sin from the universe. That's remarkable. Eliminating sin from the universe, even from the hearts of his own people, and raised to walk in the newness of life, real life. That's how the Spirit of God is going to carry this on. That's why Christians should have hope when they approach their own demise. This is God taking my sin away once and for all. Not just the penalty of it, but the presence of it. It will be gone. And I truly will walk in new life. This is what the Spirit of God is going to do. He's going to do it through the preaching of the Word of God. He's going to do it through the person of Jesus Christ. He's going to do it through the faithful ministry of the Word until the end of the world when he himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and be done with sin forever. And so we will always live with the Lord. 850 years before Jesus' public ministry, this is already being preached. Remarkable stuff. 
We'll come to the first half of Isaiah next week. I, now I don't have any expectation that we'll make it through all of Isaiah in one week. Um, but there, there are some instances, and this is one of the great things about Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about the judgment of the Lord. And then the last 27 chapters are all about the salvation and mercy of the Lord. He takes both sides of it, and he draws this huge series of arcs that express the nature of judgment and the nature of salvation. That's why all the passages that you're familiar with from Isaiah, outside of Emmanuel passages, are all from chapter 40 onwards, like chapter 53 and chapter 65, which is about the new heavens and new earth, like all these ultimate salvific uh, motifs. Um, but in the earlier chapters, as you read through it, just like, why is he constantly talking about the sins of Edom or the sins of Jerusalem or sins of Moab or the sins of, because God will not let sin ruin his world. He'll remake it. All right. We'll come back to that next week. Uh, let's pray as we close out here. Father, we're grateful that, uh, the message of your kingdom does not ignore sin. Father, we're grateful that even as, uh, even as your people, we are encouraged not to even seek vengeance on our own, but to leave it to you who will seek all vengeance and all justice and will not allow a single infraction or a single byword escape your notice and your judgment. Father, we are grateful also that you are a God of great mercy, that you have saved us who had turned our faces away from you and has sought out our own path, that you have established our feet on the rock, not to hope that we will do better, but to hope only in Christ. Father, we pray that as uh, we continue to spiral into a culture that celebrates sin, may that never be on our lips. We pray that in your Son's name and only by his power. Amen. Thanks, Jim. Sure thing. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Ken. You're welcome, Sister Naomi. <laughs> so, Mrs. Florian, Warren Ranger Librarian at ESB. I curious me to see what's on the destination. I